Hello, and welcome to this edition of Secure Networks, the Index Packet Forensic Files with your host, Michael Morris. This episode's very special guest is Jasper Bungertz, Head of Digital Forensics and IR at GData Advanced Analytics. Jasper, welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Hi, Michael. Uh, good to be here. Um, yeah, I'm working at a company doing incident response, as you already mentioned. Um, I'm in Germany, um, the area of Düsseldorf. The company's in Bochum, which is a little bit away. Um, yeah, my background is I, I, I did a lot of jobs in the past. I'm not that young anymore, so I started <laughs> computer games, then went over to database uh, stuff, uh, Finally, moving into in 2005, moving into um, selling Sniffer Pro. Um, okay. So that's how I got into looking at packets and not understanding anything because I was new at it. Um, so I was a pre-sales for Sniffer, and uh, from that I basically moved into uh, teaching about packet analysis. Um, I got in contact with uh, a training company in Germany that taught Ethereal classes back then. So then I did that for them, moved over to teaching Wireshark classes. And from that, I also um, started looking at packets in a forensic kind of way. So I got into security. And yeah, finally, now I'm doing mostly security and not troubleshooting packets anymore mm -hmm. that much. Um, and one thing that happens to me all the time is that our customers very often disconnect their internet connection. So there's no packets to look at, which is why I'm now mostly doing incident handling, like okay. um, guiding them through the process of how to get things up and running again. No, we love your background. Obviously, we got this interview set up uh, because of your participation in SharkFest and uh, some contacts you have uh, met with our team there. So I certainly appreciate your expertise. We haven't had uh, the luxury of having a a seasoned IR expert like this, and uh, your expertise in ransomware in particular is is interesting. So let's kind of start off by um, you know describing some common challenges faced during incident response, and and really how you encourage people to mitigate those. Mm. Well, the the biggest challenge I always face because I'm one of the people who talk to the customers um, at the beginning of the of the crisis that they're in is what we call the headless chicken mode. Um, okay. The customers, um, they all the peoples are uh, not familiar with that kind of situation. So if you get ransomware, everything's encrypted, nothing's working anymore. Thousands yeah. of employees cannot do their job anymore. No, no uh, computers are working. Uh, so everybody is running around and asking, what can we do? What can we do? <clears throat> so uh, one of the challenges I face is giving them a way to get through this. So uh, mitigating headless chicken mode is what we do in the beginning. Um, that involves a lot of communication, talking to people, finding out what is what did really happen, how bad is it, is there a backup that you can recover from, or isn't mm -hmm. there one? Um, because that changes what we are going to do quite a bit. Um, then, of course, if they're ransomware, um, they have the encrypted files, so there's challenges in decrypting them, if at all. Um, you usually have to buy something with Bitcoin to do that because right. encryption is pretty good these days. Well, and um, whenever you have a ransomware, um, usually the attackers are in the network for at least days, sometimes weeks, and the longest we had was for two years. Um, so you had to find all the backdoors that are left in there, and that is something that we do. No, that's I love the headless chicken mode. That's a great... Uh, 
great analogy that I've never heard before. And it's 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 interesting because I I often get in conversations on these of you know how often people don't practice and and dry run some of that stuff. So I I can totally get it. So how do you define the scope and objectives of a digital forensic investigation when responding when, you, when you're called in responding to a security incident? Yeah, um, usually customers they end up in our at our hotline. Then a ticket gets opened, and I'm one of the people who call them back. And okay. then the first thing we need to do is to figure out what did actually happen. Um, sometimes they don't know yet. <clears throat> sometimes they do know. Um, sometimes they think it's a big thing. While it isn't, sometimes it's the other way around. I had customers talk to me on, on a Friday night and they're like, yeah, we want to be up and running on Monday morning again. And my experience tells me like, this is going to be at least one or two weeks until you're even getting close to that kind of thing. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, um, from the details the customers tell me, we try to figure out what we need to do. And do we need to get on site? Can we do it remotely? Um, ever since COVID, um, we're doing almost everything remotely. Um, the yeah. one exception is whenever a hospital is hit, we always go on site because it's critical. It's life and death in some yeah. situations. So um, it depends on what the customer can tell us. And sometimes we need to figure it out with him uh, together. And it depends on also if it's ransomware, then it's quite obvious what we're going to do. Um, we have some customers who are targeted by a APT kind of scenario, advanced okay. persistent threat, um, which is like a nation state kind of attack, um, which makes the approach totally different because sometimes right. with the ransomware, it's it's obvious that you've been hit. The ransomware, usually the encryption is the last thing the attackers do and you cannot ignore and they're basically ringing all the alarm bells. Um, right. With an APT, they start. They try to stay as secretive as possible. And sometimes mm -hmm. you don't want to tell the attackers that you found them. So you can't do the drastic things like disconnecting the network and stuff like this because that would tell them that you found them. And uh, that's that. Basically, what we try to find out is it if it's a ransomware case or something that is going to be a ransomware case because. Sometimes customers call us before they get encrypted, if they're lucky. Right. Um, but if it's an APT, then the approach is quite different. Right. No, I can see that. Does when you find an APT, does it sometimes kick into ransomware at that point? Right. They like if you if you show your cards, are you? Does that sometimes mm -hmm. happen? Well, there there have been uh, reports of something like this as a kind of diversion. So okay. that the APT guys uh, encrypt files to make it look like it's just a ransomware attack, which would be organized crime compared to nation state uh, espionage. Um, but I haven't had any case like this. So, okay. um, so far, no. No, that's it's just good in, insights of what, what might happen. So uh, what are some key steps you take to preserve the integrity of the digital evidence during an investigation? Um, that that depends a bit on what case it is, obviously. Um, right, yeah. But if if we're capturing network packets, which we sometimes do, uh, depending on the situation, um, we try to use a network tap, of course, um, compared to a spend port, which is not that great because you, if if you go to court and you tell them, hey, I used the spend port. It's not as good as telling them, hey, I use this tab. There's no way of me injecting data into 
the capture, especially if I'm using a preferential capture, capture card like the Endace cards, um, I won't have any kind of problem like this because otherwise they might tell me, hey, your laptop may have injected these packets into the data stream. Nice. Um, so that's what, I, what we do. And <clears throat> when it comes to host forensics, it's write blockers to copy disks. Mm -hmm. um, but we usually only do that if we have something like an APT. Okay. In ransomware cases, um, we use a different approach, a much faster approach, and uh, collect data um, with a collection tool that grabs all the log files that we need, and uh, then the customer can us upload them to us. All of that is encrypted. It's all hashed. So we can basically be sure that this hasn't been tampered with. Right. Now, that's... Excellent experience, real world in the trenches. So what uh, tools and techniques do you employ to identify and analyze you know, potential security breaches or malicious activity? As, as you're gathering all this data, um, how do you pull that all together on in the network? Well, if it's on the network, I, I often use Snort or Suricata or Zeek um, okay. just to throw a ton of packets in there. Very often it's annoying because I have to convert them from PCAP and G to PCAP first, because otherwise they won't read it. Um, uh, Security Onion is one of the distributions that comes pre-packaged with these kind of tools, so that's quite okay. helpful. Yep. Um, but in some cases, we also do it the hard way and use T-Shark, which is the text uh, or the command line version of Wireshark, and just use that to carve protocols from the big pile. Um, things like dns because in dns you often see requests that are kind of looking fishy if you know what you're looking for mm -hmm. um, especially those that are not um, going to the major let's say alexa 1 million uh, domain list okay yeah we we often compare it to that kind of thing um <clears throat> also domain name generated or these generated domain names um stuff like this so um we're, we're looking for for uh abnormal communications if we can right. find it and you mentioned dns we've had a number of examples where we've heard of you know embedded traffic within dns and you know having the the pcap data can really help in that scenario so how do you prioritize and categorize different types of security incidents you've mentioned apts and uh um ransomware in, in particular but um how do you how do you categorize them uh <coughs> the different types of security incidents to mm. allocate the appropriate resources and respond effectively. Yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, once again, the, the talking to the customer at the beginning basically will tell me what kind of resources I will need. Um, usually what we do is um, we uh, assign one incident handler, one forensics person, and one malware reverse engineer to a case. So okay. it's always these three. Sometimes if the case is really big, like we had a university in Germany um, at the beginning of the year, all my, my whole team went into this one um, because it was so big and it was so much to do. Um, <clears throat> it, it basically depends on what the problem scenario is, but uh, uh, the bigger it is, the more people need to pull into it. And we always um, make a, um, yeah, we try to figure out at the beginning of each week how much how much people we have that can right. take new jobs and then we assign them okay okay what are some <clears throat> emerging trends or technologies in digital forensics and and ir that professionals in this field should be aware of and really should be adopting as day-to-day -day, you know tools and mm. activities um, from my point of view um if you're talking about ransomware and these uh 
basically um, attacks that come from from organized crime. Um, speed is the most important thing. So um, get the customer back to a uh, emergency operating state as quickly as possible because every day that they can't work, it costs them money and a lot of money. <clears throat> so you don't have time to do disk copies because if you do a disk copy, <laughs> it may take days or at least hours. Uh, and then you only can start to investigate. So what we're recommending is move to a process that grabs the files that you need the most, like the log files, especially Windows event logs, um, as quickly as possible. And there's one great tool to do that that we are using, which is uh, open source. It's Velociraptor. Um, mm -hmm. And we basically use that to uh, give it to the customer prepackaged, especially for his case. It will pack a zip file. Uh, it compresses all the event logs and all the things that we need into a zip file, then he can upload it to our cloud. And then we can start analyzing, like sometimes an hour after he called us, if okay. he's lucky. Interesting. Yeah, so um, going away from the tedious law enforcement process of <laughs> write blocking and doing all these things, um, it's just too slow for that kind of thing. And the customer is not that interested in going into a court case because the, car, the, the attackers are usually somewhere where you cannot even right. get them into a courtroom. Right. No, that's tremendous insights. So, Jasper, you've got special expertise, obviously, in ransomware. What are some suggestions you can give our listeners to to prevent and avoid being the target of a ransomware attack? Well, it's not that different from any kind of attack, basically. <laughs> what I tell them all the time is you have two lines of defense. Uh, the first line is you need to protect your domain administrator accounts of your Active Directory because ransomware, they always attack the Windows environment, which means the Active Directory, and they try to get to the domain administrator credentials. Okay. So you need to put up a good hygiene when using those. Uh, we recommend using domain administrator accounts only for administrating the domain itself, not for <clears throat> user support or administrating any kind of normal service, but uh, use the Microsoft tier model um, to have different account types for different kinds of work that you do. Okay. And the second line of defense, obviously, is disaster recovery or the backup process. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our customers who do backup, because everybody does, right, um, they do it for a situation where a server dies or a file is deleted, but not for somebody intentionally trying to encrypt all the files and sabotage the backup. So you need to get that into your head, like somebody is trying to destroy my backup before they're encrypting everything. And to try to have a disaster recovery setup that is protected against um, sabotage, that is okay. quite important because it's the last line of defense. If your Active Directory fell, you only have the backups, which decides if you have to pay the ransom or not. Right. No, that's that's incredible insights on on having the the disaster recovery piece um, and protecting it from sabotage. Right. That's that's clearly the key there. Um, are there tools or processes that you recommend in particular for SOC teams to to focus on ransomware? I mean, because it's becoming so much more prevalent. Well. Um... Yeah, um, it's not that different from any kind, any other kind of breach. I mean, okay. a SOC always tries to find uh, <laughs> right. people in the network who, which shouldn't be there or who shouldn't be there. Um, <clears throat> we're using Windows event logs because it's uh, if you're looking at the right 
types of logs. You can see attack, attacker behavior. Um, we usually look at uh, remote desktop protocol logs and the PowerShell logs because that's where the attackers usually show up because they're living off the land right now. They're not bringing their own tools that much anymore. <clears throat> and um, if you can, um, I've seen tools that can uh, monitor the network and um, do a deep packet analysis on SMB, for example, mm -hmm. and warn you if there's a lot of read, write, and basically encrypt um, routines going mm -hmm. on. So um, a tool like this can alert you from an ongoing encryption running over your network. Mm. Okay, no, that's that's good insights on the SMB traffic. And, and again, that's where packet data can help you filter and un understand yeah. what type of traffic you're looking at there. You, you need a, you need to have like a, a packet capture appliance, a good one, of right. course, because it needs to capture it all um, or as much as possible. Have it running all the time and then have these alerts on it. Um, that would help a lot. No, great insights. How do you ensure compliance with legal and regulatory requirements when conducting digital forensic investigations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking to law enforcement all the time because okay. usually they get called in and we try to coordinate with them because sometimes they want to do things that <clears throat> gets into the way of what the customer wants to do and what we want to do. And very often we try to uh, share uh, our findings and, and the evidence that we have. Um, we have an NDA with all our customers all the time because um, we're handling their most right. private data mostly and um, whenever we share it with somebody else if it's law enforcement or anybody else we always make sure that the customer is okay with it right. <clears throat> we never do that just like because we can and documentation is key you need to document basically everything so that if it goes to court <clears throat> or if you, anybody wants to know what you did you can show them like this was my process this is how i did this this is how i got here this is the result so that it can be proven by a third party right no it's do, do you think most organizations have kind of the processes in place to engage law enforcement on no. the ready i mean <laughs> they don't i was curious what your experience was i i'm betting a lot of them don't yeah. have that that I kind usually of plan get the question, in place like who to call first law enforcement or the incident response people right. and i usually tell them call the incident response people first because we can start working right away while law enforcement, at least in Germany, they will show up at some point with a lot of people and they bring equipment and then they start doing whatever they're doing, but that's not helping the customer to get things running again. Mm -hmm. So it's, <clears throat> from my point of view, it's better to get the incident response people, like uh, anybody who can help with that, uh, on board first and then do the rest of this. No, great insights. So Jasper, one of the things I always like to ask our experts uh, that come on is, you know, put on your prognosticator hat a little bit here. And what's what's one thing you recommend to our listeners to really think about or look out for in the next six to 18 months? And that's an eternity in cybersecurity. But, uh, you know, as they're trying to stay in front of the ever-shifting battle for cyber and network security, what's, what's one thing they should think about? Well, I thought about this um, kind of thing for, for my customers too. And um, uh, the thing is that we expect that 
the bad guys are going to move away from the encryption thing maybe in the future because it's not that relevant anymore because people are getting better and better with disaster recovery and all the vendors that do um, uh, backup solutions, they have ransomware as a selling factor now or protection against ransomware. Okay. So <clears throat> customers are more aware about ransomware and the, the, um, the threat it poses than they used to. So they're mm -hmm. going to have better disaster recovery, which means that encrypting all the files is a nuisance, but not a reason anymore to pay the ransom, which is why we, or I expect the bad guys to move away from the encryption and focus more on exfiltrating important data and um, basically asking the company to pay un or else they will basically publish their internals. Right. Um, so the, this kind of extortion will probably get much more critical in the next couple of months or years. And <clears throat> it is a really hard thing to prove. Um, customers always ask us, hey, um, you're sure that data was exfiltrated before the encryption? Yes, because they always do that. Um, can you tell us which data it was? And usually we can't because there's no evidence for that kind of thing. Right. We can sometimes tell the customers, oh, the attacker has been in these folders on that file server, but we can't tell them exactly what they did in there. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> a solution to that, and sometimes we, we get something like this, at least would be something like NetFlow or even packet data, which is mm -hmm. not that common, unfortunately, at least in Germany. I don't know about right. the rest, but um, with packet data, especially with a good capture engine, you could prove what happened on the file server. You right. could prove uh, which kind of SMB accesses you had, un unless it's encrypted, of course, uh, but nobody does that, right? So um, you could prove and tell them, okay, we see that the attackers accessed these files, they exfiltrated these files, and then the um, management board can put a number to it and say, okay, if this gets leaked, it's this bad for us, and then they can decide, do we want to pay or don't we? Um, I had one customer so far who only paid because they didn't want to have their uh, patented technologies being published on the darknet. Um, everything else, when somebody paid, and that's only like two out of 10 cases for okay. my kind of customers, um, they usually do it because they want to have the decryption tool. But I think this will move away to the data exfil and extortion thing. So anything that you can do to... Um, detect data exfiltration, or at least after the fact, find out what it was, will help you. No, that's that's great insight. It's interesting thought moving away from the encryption. And, and data exfiltration, as, as you know, is one of the big uh, use cases for what Endace does to really help some of our customers. So it's just, you know, that's where we're trying to help more customers uh, gain value in their infrastructure. Jasper, thank you for taking time out of your evening. It's late there in Germany, so I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for taking time and, and sharing your expertise and insights in how to better secure networks. We'd ask our listeners to tune in next time for another edition of the Endace Packet Forensic Files. For more information about Endace's network packet capture platform and our integrations with our Fusion Technology partners, please go to endace.com. Jasper, again, thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All right. 